three questions that we're going to ask as we spend this time in uh, reflection is, is God, what are you revealing concerning yourself? What are you revealing concerning yourself? The second question is, what are you revealing concerning people? You know, what, what are you revealing concerning people? What should I know here as we read this text? And what are you speaking into me about people and about our people? And the third question that I ask and that I'd like you to ask as well as you read the word is, God, what are you revealing concerning me? What about me? Are you revealing that may need encouragement, may need uh, to be transformed, may need to be conformed to your image, may need encouragement or exhortation to be built up? Either way, that's what we want to do today. That's what we want to engage in. And, and that's what we're going to do as we spend time in the prayer, in prayer and in the reading of the word. So let's do it. Father, I thank you that you brought us here together. Lord, in this time that we spend together, I just pray that you would speak into us, Father. Lord, speak through us, in us. Lord, as we read your word, Father, I pray that you would give revelation, Lord, to your heart. And I ask that in your name we pray. Amen. We're in Nehemiah, fam. We're in Nehemiah. So if you can go ahead and turn your Bibles there. We're in Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to get right to it. And it says this in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. It came to pass in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of the brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Hmm. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you, and observe your commandments. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray the word that you will scatter. Sorry, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which you have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. Now, these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. Verse 1, chapter 2. 
And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was given to him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? There is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? And the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, The queen also sitting behind him, How long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel which pertains to the temple for the city wall and for the houses that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me and Senbalat, the Horonite and the Tobiah, the Ammonite official heard of it. They were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night and I and a few men with me, I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent wall and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. Then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. And they set their hands to do this good work. But Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it. They laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built as far as the Tower of the Hundred and consecrated it, then as far as the Tower of Hananel. Next to Eliashib, 
the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zakur, the son of Imri built, and the sons of Hesanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and next to him Miramoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Koz, made repairs. Next to them Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. Next to them Zadok, the son of Bana, made repairs. Next to them the Tekoites made repairs. But their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. Moreover, Jehoiada, the son of Peseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah, repaired the old gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And next to them, Melatiah, the Gibeonite, Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, repaired the residence of the governor of the region beyond the river. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Hariah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs. And also next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. When they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall, and next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, the leader of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumaf, made repairs in front of his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Heshbaniah, made repairs. Malkijah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Path Moab, repaired another section, as well as the tower of the ovens. And next to him was Shalom, the son of Haloesh, leader of half the district of Jerusalem. He and his daughters made repairs. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zanoah repaired the valley gate. They built it, hung its doors with its bolt and bars, and repaired thousands of cubits of the wall as far as the refuse gate. Melchizedek, the son of Rechab, leader of the district of Beth Heserim, repaired the refuse gate. He built it and hung its doors with its bolt and bars. Shalun, the son of Kal Hezo. Hose, leader of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it, covered it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and repaired the wall of the pool of Shelah by the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, leader of half the district of Beth Zer, made repairs as far as the place in front of the tombs of David, to a man-made pool, and as far as the house of the mighty. After him, the Levites, under Rehum, the son of Bani, made repairs. Next to him, Hashabiah, leader of half the district of Keliah, made repairs for his district. After him, their brethren, under Baviah, the son of Hanadad, leader of the other half of the district of Keliah, made repairs. And next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, the leader of Mizpah, repaired another section in front of the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, carefully repaired the other section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Kaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the plain, made repairs. After him, Benjamin, Hashub, made repairs opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, Messiah, 
the son of Ananiah, made repairs by his house. After him, Benui, the son of Hanadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress as far as the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, made repairs opposite the buttress and on the tower which projects from the king's upper house that was by the court of the prison. After him, Pediah, the son of Parash, made repairs. Moreover, the Nethanim who dwelt in Ophel made repairs as far as the place in front of the water gate toward the east and on the projecting tower. After them, the Tekoites repaired another section next to a great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Beyond the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, made repairs in front of his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, made repairs. And after him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemai, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. After him, Melusham, of the son of Berechiah, made the repairs in front of his dwelling. And after him, Melchizedek, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of Nethanim, and of the merchants in front of the Ofkad gate. Hmm as far as the upper room at the corner and between the upper room at the corner as far as the sheep gate. Hmm. Chapter 3, verse 1. But it so happened, when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up to it, he will break it down. He will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised, Turn their reproach on their own heads. Give them as plunder to the land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. For they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So we built the wall, the entire wall joined together up to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. Hmm. Now it happened when Senbalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God. And because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. Then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing, and there's so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversary said, they will neither know nor see anything till we, have, till we come in their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us ten times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Therefore, I positioned men beyond the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. 
Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. So it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held spears and shields and bows and wore armor. And the leaders were behind all the house of Israel, those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with another hand held a weapon. Goodness gracious. Every one of the builders had his own sword girded at his side as he built. And the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Whoever hears the sound of the trumpet, rally us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored in the work. And half of the men held spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. At the same time, I also said to the people, let each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem, that they may be our guard by night and a working party by day. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who follow me took off their clothes, except that everyone took them off for the washing. Hmm. The word of God. The word of God. The words of God. I'd like to preface um, before we even start, because there are those of you who are here for the first time. And, you know, this may be a new thing for you. If it is, I want to just say, glad you're here. Glad you've joined us. This is the Read and Rant. We spend about 20 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes reading scripture, and then we spend another 20 to 30 minutes reflecting on the scripture, meditating on the scripture to hear what the Lord has to say to us today. And so today we're in Nehemiah. We've gone from Genesis now all the way to Nehemiah, and our goal, our objective here, our directive here is to read through the entire Old Testament, and then afterwards to go again and read through the entire New Testament. Some of you have been with us from the beginning where we've read through the entire New Testament and came back around, looped around with us as we're reading through the entire Old Testament. Some of you are just joining us, and maybe you've caught up in the Read and Rant podcast. If you haven't, I'd like to encourage you to catch up on the Read and Rant podcast. Okay, Um, And there you'll be able to catch up, you'll get all the readings, and you'll be able to see where we are. The privilege that those of you who have been uh, um, attending every morning with us live or have been catching up with the podcast, the privilege that you have in our reading today is that you've got context. Um, What you should read when you read this text, what you should be reading is a continuation of what we read in our last reading last week when we concluded the book of Ezra. Nehemiah is not a... Uh, It's not a new book in the sense of it's just a whole new book written by an entirely new author. Nehemiah is a continuation of the book of Ezra. Matter of fact, the original Hebrew texts have Ezra and Nehemiah as one book. And so Ezra and Nehemiah is one book. It's just a continuation of a story. So it's important that as we read this right now, 
what God is revealing, even as I'm spending time in meditation of his word today, what God is revealing is, is, is he's revealing something within the context of what we've read in the book of Ezra. To preface, remember that the children of Israel, again, context is, is critically important. And I hope that those of you who are who have been reading with us, you're seeing the story right unfold before you. And you're seeing the things that are being spoken about as they're being spoken. I hope as you're reading, you go, yeah, I remember that. I remember reading that in Samuel. Or I remember reading that in, in Second Kings. Yeah, I remember when that was spoken about in 1 Kings. Yes, I do remember in Leviticus when this had happened. And I do, and so I hope you're beginning to connect that because again, this is a story. It's a historical narrative. It's a historical narrative about a people whom God is instituting his righteousness and his justice through. And if you know anything about the story, what you know is that at the end of Second Kings, right, Ezra is the continuation of that. And at the end of Second Kings, right, the children of Israel have been brought into captivity as a result of their, de their deviation from the will of God. As a result of them deviating from the will of God. And now we, we enter about, about 50 to 60 years later when the book of Ezra is written that now they're the Persian kings who now the empire is being run by the Persians. When they left, they left it under Babylonian captivity. The Persians took over the Babylonians. And now, by God's inspiration, right, the, the, the Persian uh, uh, magistrates, the Persian kings now are sending the children of Israel back to their land, sending them back to their land. And, and so initially it was Zerubbabel that was sent back. Zerubbabel was sent back, and there he began to establish the people there. Afterwards, Ezra, who was uh, a scholar, a scribe of the scriptures, uh, he came and there was a second round of Israelites that came back to Jerusalem. And what I find interesting now that we get into this third part of the story is we get to Nehemiah now. So we've got Ezra, sorry, we have Zerubbabel, we have Ezra, and then now we have Nehemiah. Zerubbabel was inspired to rebuild the temple. But we saw that as the story of Zerubbabel ends, it ends in a very uh, anticlimactic way. Then we get into Ezra, and Ezra also ends in a very anticlimactic way. One sees the temple built, but doesn't see the glory of God. The other one establishes the people in the teaching of the Torah and yet does not see transformation. And there's a rebuilding that still needs to happen. Nehemiah now comes in. And Nehemiah, if you see how the opening, the opening of the story, Nehemiah is burdened by what he's hearing about with the children who are in Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah says, I, I, I need to go back. Nehemiah, of course, is unique from the other two because Nehemiah has direct institutional access to Artaxerxes, the king. And so Nehemiah then uh, makes a request to the king and the king provides him resources, provides him connections and provides him protection on the way and provides him with all that he needs to rebuild the walls. What I find interesting, though, as I read this text is 
that upon him being directed to rebuild the walls, we see a story here. Pay very close attention. We see a story here. As we read through Nehemiah chapter 2 and chapter 3, we see a story of many other things that are being rebuilt. As I'm reading it, I'm painting, there's a story being painted here. There's an image being painted. As we're hearing about the activity of the children of God in the rebuilding of the city, what comes to my imagination, if you will, is the magnitude of the destruction in Jerusalem. If you see the story, you see these people engaging together to rebuild Jerusalem. But the walls weren't the only thing that needed rebuilding. Are you hearing me, fam? The walls weren't the only thing that needed rebuilding. We see, we see um, the different structures that needed repair and rebuilding. And we see now this collaborative effort of all the children of Israel coming together to rebuild it. But man, a lot of things were destroyed and a lot of things needed repair. It gives me an image. I'm, I'm, it, it gives me the image of a city just in shambles, a city in absolute destruction and turmoil. This city has been completely destroyed. It wasn't just that the walls needed fixing. The entire city needed repair. It wasn't just the rebuilding of the walls on the exterior, but it was a rebuilding of the city on the interior. I say this because often we have a tendency to want to repair and to fix the things that people see. The walls are the things that people see. Are you hearing me, fam? But the, the, the buildings and the pools and the streets and the roads, those are the things that people do not see. And it speaks into the tendency that people of God have to fix the exterior while the interior remains in shambles. Isn't it funny how people want to fix what's on the outside without addressing what's on the inside? Because many of us, what we're looking to do is to be accepted and to be loved by people. And so we're okay with all the trauma and the brokenness on the inside. But let's make sure we build the walls on the outside, even though the city is broken on the inside. And so in the end, what we end up being is disingenuous, inauthentic people who simply go into church communities showing a face and a facade because, again, what we're seeking is simply to fix the outside even though on the inside we find ourselves profoundly broken. Sad. Sad. Sad that that is the condition of the people of God. That the people of God want to simply conform to what culture, society, what their group, what their cult wants to believe that they ought to be and ought to look like. And so in the end, 
Not only are they fake and they're lying to everyone else, but then they're fake and they're lying to themselves. And in the end, they can't find peace or joy or gladness. They can't find a sense of true acceptance because what people are accepting is a fake version of you. But what I notice in this text is that the rebuilding of Jerusalem first began on the inside before it started and before it was put together on the outside. And there are many of us, fam, who we've got to really evaluate our spiritual lives and ask ourselves, what governs us? Is it who we are on the outside that governs us? You know, the walls that the city leaders see, the walls that the other communities see, is that what we, you know, is that what we want people to see? Or are we going to first address the fact that even if I build the walls well on the outside, and even if they look good on the outside, man, it's in shambles on the inside. Can I just say it real quick, family? There are marriages that are in shambles on the inside. There are families that are in complete destruction and shambles on the inside. There are friendships. There are people who are completely in utter destruction on the inside. And yet they are very good at building veneers on the outside and building walls. And what they do is, is they keep repairing the walls, but they never fix what's on the inside. And so here's what happens. You end up looking good for everybody else, but your life is profoundly uncomfortable and painful. What happens when you build on the outside first? Ooh, I'm gonna do a little teaching. I'm gonna do a little teaching. This is just me ministering to you. We're gonna get to the point of this book later on, but I feel I need to minister to some folks. I need to, I feel like I really need to spend some time here because for many of us, we spend all of our resources and all of our facility and all of our energy and effort to manage ourselves on the outside. Oh, yeah, you know what that looks like. When you exhaust every part of who you are to protect the image and the veneer that you have created. So where there's cracks in the wall, you quickly repair it. When there's, when, 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 there, when there's a perception, you quickly work to fix it. And so you're always fixing perceptions, 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 and you're always fixing the exterior. And so you exhaust all of your energy and all of your effort to fix the structure on the outside. But here's the thing, is that when the outside looks good, it garners the enemy's attention. <laughs> and because of that now, what happens is you live in a perpetual cycle of being attacked by those who you've garnered the attention of because the outside veneer looks good. And so you never now have been given the access, the resource, and the time to fix what's on the inside. I speak to this. Because the children of Israel were able to build the city and to fix the city and the enemy hasn't yet taken any attention in that. 
I, you might notice that as you read the text. They're watching, but they're like, hmm, I don't like what they're doing over there. Huh, I, I don't like it. I don't like it, but you know, we're just going to watch. We're going to watch. And notice, they kept working on this. They, they, they worked on the, they were working, they were working. They started to rebuild. But it was upon the rebuilding of the walls. Oh, no. When the walls started to get built, that's when the enemy had an issue. Now, we could talk about the socio-political climate in that time. We could talk about how militaristically building up the building of the wall and the fortifying of the city established the city's presence and the city's power. We could talk about all of that. But get this, though. They didn't move until the wall started to get worked on. Did you hear me? They didn't move. The enemy did not move until the wall started to be worked on. <laughs> and so the children of Israel were afforded a time to fix what was on the inside before they began to establish structure on the outside. Why is that important? It's important because once they started to build what was on the outside, that's when the enemy started to attack. Oh, once they started to build the wall, that's when the enemy started to come and threaten. And that was when the builders now had to build with a weapon. There's so many messages in all of that. As we see the story of the children of Israel rebuilding the wall. But I want you to pay very, very close attention to this family. Yes, we see that these people needed protection. They needed bodyguards. They needed trumpets to sound in case the enemy came to attack. They were on high alert because as they were building the wall, some of them held a tool and some of them had to hold a weapon because now the rebuilding of the wall garnered the attention of the enemy. But imagine the energy that it took, the resource that it took, and the time that it took to build that wall. The effort that it took to build that wall. Not just, not just the, 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 the energy that it took for them personally, physically, with their time, but also with the risk for the, their lives. Their lives were at risk to build this wall. <laughs> because after this wall is built there won't be much left for what's on the inside it wasn't even about the resources it wasn't even about whether or not they had the, the wood, the timber, the stone it wasn't about all that it was, do, will we have anything left when we build this wall? And what you're going to notice is, notice, they said every time they saw part of the wall being filled in and they saw the gaps being filled in, the enemy garnered attention and they came and attacked. This was a war. To build a wall is a war. I'm sorry, this is just the Lord speaking to me today and I'm speaking to some of you because I believe the Lord is speaking to some of us here today is there are many of us that have been at war and the war has been the war of protecting these exterior images of ourselves. We've been at war building this wall 
But unlike the children of Israel, we have nobody working on what's happening on the inside. And so we've got a wall that we're protecting, but at the end of the day, there's nothing inside to protect. Everything inside is broken. So you're protecting the image of your marriage when the reality is your marriage is broken. You're protecting the image of your family, but when in reality, you need somebody to help you put your family back together. You face the reality of of what's happening with you emotionally and mentally, and you know deep down inside you're dealing with pain and trauma, but let's make it look good on the outside. And because you're spending so much resource, energy, and effort on the outside, you got nothing left on the inside. You got nothing left for what's inside. And so you built a wall that's protecting a city that's already in shambles. I feel compelled to say this to some folks who are here. If you're listening to this, is yeah, we can build that wall, but we have to build the city. You can build the wall, but you have to build the city. You've got to rebuild the city because once you build the wall, Now you're going to live in a perpetual reality of fighting against an enemy on the outside. And in the end, you have nothing to protect inside and nothing inside. (laughs) Oh, man. I find it interesting how the enemy comes in and attacks the wall builders. But what I find interesting in this text is that it is the people that had reasoned and they joined together and they were of one mind to build the wall. They had it in their mind to do it. I say this because this is critically important. Let's make sure we have some context here. Between, uh, between Zerubbabel, Ezra, and now Nehemiah, that we've been reading through the story between these individuals, we're talking about a period of decades, meaning all the shambles and the rubble and the destruction of the city, because this city is profoundly destroyed. All of it, all of the city, these people were living in this. Anybody thought about that? (laughs) I know, I'm ranting, I'm ranting. But as I was reading it, I'm like, hold on a second. These people were living in this situation. They were living in this condition. They were living in this circumstance for decades. They saw the destruction of the pools and the buildings and the homes and the streets. They saw the city in rubble. They lived in this. This became their normal. Imagine Ezra preaching and he's standing on a stage and all around him are just buildings in rubble. Absolute rubble, absolute destruction. 
And it reminds me of the condition of man that we often see the brokenness. We often see it all. We often see uh, the profound brokenness in the person and in the individual. We see it. We see the brokenness in the community. We see the brokenness in the people. We see the brokenness in culture. We see the brokenness in society, and yet we sit in it and do nothing about it. We see the brokenness in the church, and yet we sit in it and do nothing about it. For some of us, it's uh, apathy. We just don't care. For others, we care. And it bothers us that the church is the way that it is. It bothers us that people are the way that they are. It bothers us. I mean, all you got to do is just is scan through TikTok and scan through, you know, um, IG and just watching the videos about church and about church people. And you're going to see so much pain, so much destruction. You're going to see so much ruin that has been created through this institution that we call church especially the part of that institution that has been man-made and isn't even scripturally founded. And yet we see the profound pain that has come from that. And some of us are hurt and burdened by it, but then we sit in it. So it's not apathy. It's simply the fact that we feel disempowered. And there's nothing we can do. Right? Right? And yet, what does the scripture tell us? As Nehemiah comes in with resource to rebuild the city, all of a sudden, new hope came to the people. And the people began to rebuild. What I find really cool about this text is, if you go to chapter 4, sorry, was it chapter 4? Um... Chapter 3, sorry. If you look at chapter 3, where the water gates, the east gates, all the different gates are being built, that people were rebuilding their own homes and their own territory. There was a new sense of, of, of identity and hope, and it was in that changing of the mind that the people began to see that they are empowered to do what they've been called to do. This city can be rebuilt, and I don't need to wait for somebody to do it. This city can be rebuilt. I just need to get my hands in motion. And there are many of us who see the condition of the church and the world, all the pain, all the suffering. We see all the, we see all the isms, racism, capitalism, socialism, all the destruction that has been caused by that. We see all the different institutions and the governments and the powers. We see all these things that have caused so much pain, strife, anger. We see wars. We see manipulation. We see, um, we see poverty. We see all of this. And then we look at all of it and we see the profundity of the pain and the suffering of it all. And in the end, it leaves us feeling disempowered because we can't fix that. We can't do that. And yet notice what the text tells us. I'll use Hananiah as an example and go back and read Nehemiah chapter 3. They didn't fix the wall or the city or they didn't go to the other street. What they fixed was right what was right in front of them. what they fix, what was right in front of them. The problem began in their home. 
the problem was on their street. The problem was right in front of them. No one's asking you to save the world, but my God, you can step in and engage in your family. After him, Hen and I, um, where is it? Uh, after him, I'll use verse 30 as an example. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, made repairs where? In front of his dwelling. In front of his dwelling. To see a world restored, to see the kingdom of God on earth, to see all things made new, doesn't require you to go to the ends of the earth. You may not even need to step out of your door. Did you hear me? You may not even need to step out of your door. It may be on your porch. It may be on your front yard. It may be on your street. There's somebody right now saying, man, I, I want the Lord to use me. Well, maybe he wants you to be a light on your own street. Maybe he's calling you to be a light at your job. Maybe there's somebody you need to pray for today. And I know this is going to sound crazy. Okay, I'm ranting, y'all. This is just what the Lord's compelling me. And I know you guys are used to it, but I always have to say it because I apologize. I don't know why I have to apologize for it because right now, if you're still here, it's because you're, you're a masochist. You love to endure these rants. But here's the reality is that some of us are waiting for something big to happen. We're waiting for a move of God, yet we are the move of God. Each and every one of you is a move of God. Let me say that one more time. There are so many of you waiting for a move of God, waiting for God to move, waiting for God to restore the earth, waiting for God to establish his righteousness and his justice, waiting for God to, to respond to the brokenness of humanity and society, waiting for God to fix the problems in your city. And yet, while you're sitting there waiting for a move of God, I came to tell you that you are a move of God. The world is waiting on you. And you don't need to go to the ends of the earth. Just go to the end of your street. You don't need to go to the ends of the earth. You may just need to go to the end of the hallway. And maybe all you need to do is just to pray for somebody today. Maybe all you need to do is make proclamations over your city to walk in the authority of God. Maybe you just need to be light on your block. So be the move of God. Be the move of God. What's broken in this world is right in front of you. So do something about what you can do and trust that God will do the rest. I know there's more to talk about with Nehemiah, but I felt it was critically important to share that today that there are those of us who are trying to fix what's on the outside. When we got so much to fix on the inside. And yet this is where, I know it leads us in attention because while we're trying to fix the exterior, we don't see the resource yet for the interior. 
yet I came to offer you this, that there's something that you can achieve and that you can encounter and that you can see. And yes, there is a prophet and a repairer and a restorer who can walk into the crevices of your soul while you're sitting there trying to figure your life out, trying to figure yourself out, while you are sitting there trying to make sense of why you are so broken, while you're sitting there trying to figure out how you can fix yourself, I came to tell you that somebody knows all the crevices of your soul, knows every nook and cranny of who you are and knows exactly what you need. And if you would approach him, he would give you all the resource to be able to overcome so rather than creating a facade of yourself, a veneer of no value, when you know that what's on the inside is broken, instead, bring the walls down and present your brokenness before Jesus and let him put you back together. Jesus makes us all new. And yet what we see at the end of this text and the tension is that there's something on the inside that still needs repair. That even when we fix the structure, the institution in the city, there's something even deeper that needs repair. And yet, what does he do? He offers us repair in him. So may we seek repair, not out of our own ability or out of our own capacity, but let's seek it in Christ. Father, I ask today, Lord, as we engage today, Lord, I pray that you would give us the conviction, Lord, to step out, Lord God, and see what's in front of us before we go and seek what's on the outside. Just to see what needs repair in front of us and to pray with full dependence on you, Lord, to participate with you in the renewal of what is in front of us. And for those, Lord, who are facing the conviction that we've been building walls, Lord, walls, Lord, that have Lord, kept us busy, keeping them maintained and managed. And yet we know we're fully aware that we are broken on the inside and that we need restoration there. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to step away from the walls and allow you to fix all that is within us. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would guide each and every person, Lord God, that they would hear your word today and know, Lord, that you make all things new. And we say that in Jesus' name, amen and amen.